Welcome to the show, everybody. This is a really terrific episode, uh, and one of the only ones that I've had three guests, I believe. So I really liked the dynamic. I'm I'm going to start potentially looking into. We'll see how it works out logistically, but sometimes trying to have multiple guests more often and have uh, turn it into more of a roundtable uh, discussion, at least just to mix it up from time to time. And so, yeah, always experimenting. I think you're going to like this a lot. If you want to support the show, this ad-free content is 100% supported by... You, Patreon members, go to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. Uh, we do regular game nights and group overshares. Just had a terrific one um, talking all about just uh, what's been on uh, a bunch of our, got, I think, 10 of us together and chatted about just th- different things that were on our minds lately. And it was super fun. It's always so nice to meet the people that listen to this show people that are into learning new things and learning about science and so it's a pretty cool community so i hope you'll join it and join the discord and everything else over on patreon enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are welcome to the show everybody i am shane moss joining me today I have, this is the first ever four-person Here We Are podcast, I believe, if my memory is serving me correctly. I think I've had two, I've had two guests on several times before. I don't think I've ever had three. This is a special occasion. It only happens once every 17 years <laughs> or so. Um, I, I have, uh, uh, my one return guest on the show is actually the most popular guest on the show He's been on more than any other guest. Uh, people uh, people love hearing from him. We always have a great positive response. And so anytime some sort of insect thing comes up in the news, which I'm sure if you're an entomologist is every day, but permeates through the culture and is making big headlines, I always reach out to Barrett and say, who you got? Who's interesting in this field? So I uh, I reached out to Barrett Klein, who works at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Uh, he is a professor of evolutionary biology, right? Let's say animal behavior and entomology. The, yeah, but evolution's at the it. core of all biology. That's what you do. And uh, and yeah, so he's back. We're actually just going to have everyone kind of introduce themselves. So Barrett, for the people that haven't seen you on the show before, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. So I am an entomologist, really interested in sleep and social insects, honeybees, paper wasps, and others. But my ventures take me into scientific visualization, how visuals affect science and cultural entomology, how insects affect humans and human culture throughout history. And that means I meet a a lot of really fascinating people, and I'm so excited that I was able to help lure in two great friends of mine 
Joseph Yun from Brooklyn Bugs, and Gene Kritsky, World Authority on Cicadas. And this is another unusual thing. I think this is the first time it's ever happened on the show. Um, Gene showed up, and I was like, Gene, is that scotch that you're drinking <laughs> in the afternoon? And he, as a joke, because um, I was like, surely that's just a scotch-looking thing with ice in it. And he's like, yep, sure is. And I was like, all right, well, I guess we're all drinking now. So this is an especially fun episode of Here We Are. If my dean is listening, it's iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, having a, I mean, this is this is a special event. This is a special year. If you're into cicadas, I mean, this is this is a real celebratory time um, for you guys. Gene, why don't you introduce yourself? Yes, uh, Shane, it's a pleasure to be here. And Barrett, good to see you again. Yes, and jo- Joseph, nice to nice to meet you as well. Um, I, I'm Gene Kritsky. I'm a North Dakota native. I'm a second-generation American. My grandparents homesteaded in North Dakota in the year 1900. So that's something that a very few people can say at this time in the world. Uh, undergraduate work at Indiana University, where I was the student of Dr. Frank Young. Uh, he was the entomologist hired to replace Alfred C. Kinsey. For those of you who know Kinsey of the Sex Institute, he was also an entomologist, worked on gall wasps. And then really? he got really into sex. But that's not unusual yeah. for entomologists. And so, because it has to do yeah, with Well, I mean, is there is there any more interesting sex out there in in all of Earth than in entomology? I, I would I would say that probably not. It runs the gambit. And then I did my yeah. PhD work at uh, in the University of Illinois with Louis Standard, and, and both Frank was the cicada specialist for Indiana. Lou Standard was a cicada specialist for Illinois. And while there, I got to be good, very close friends with uh, Monty Lloyd at the University of Chicago and Hank Dibus at the University of, uh, at the Field Museum of Natural History. I met Tom Moore. I, I, I'm sort of that bridge between all the early 20th century and the people that are coming up now between uh, in, in the cicada lineage. But I work on primarily periodical cicadas. I've written uh, several papers and two books on honeybees, mostly honeybees in the history of the beehive, beekeeping in ancient Egypt. I uh, have uh, written my pub- I have over 250 publications from everything from the history of science to straight evolution to uh, cultural entomology. Barrett and I share that as a as a, a very strong interest. And uh, I also teach a number of courses, including not only entomology and evolution. And Barrett's right, evolution is the core of of uh, what we do in biology. I also teach a course in dinosaur biology. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm extremely fond of dinosaurs. And to bring this full circle, uh, my good friend George Bernard Jr. up in Oregon, uh, he and I co-described a 110 million year old cicada nymph that crawled out of that tree and fell in a slop of amber and was, uh, not amber, but sap and was formed, uh, preserved in amber. And it's nice to know that during the time of uh, the ancestors of the Tyrannosaurs, that cicadas were singing in the forests of uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, how and much? When, and when uh, the field, when the American Museum of Natural History built their Kosai uh, dinosaur exhibit in Columbus, they put cicadas in it. So uh, amazing. Now, Gene, do we know exactly what that cicada might have sounded like? Because you know, there's that Jurassic recording from an orthopter, a jumping insect that. They recreated because they had the uh, the morphology to do uh, so. No, we do. Yeah, we can't do that with because it's a barely. It's essentially it's a one minute old first instar nymph. 
Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> unfortunately, we can't. Bummer. Can I ask you a question? Was every I don't I've actually never talked about dinosaurs on the show before, which is uh, Barrett's told me is a tragedy travesty. and uh, yeah, travesty. And I, but but my impression, not knowing anything about dinosaurs, was everything. Was it just a, a pool of amber back then? Like, <laughs> if, I feel like everything was just falling in it all all the time. Well, not really. It's, it's basically uh, uh, it collected in little nooks and crannies uh, at the base of the tree in many cases, and uh, it just happens to fall in there. But it happened over billions of years. Amazing. And these trees that produce the amber sap produce lots of sap. I mean, that's not just a little drop here and there like we see in our pine trees, for example, in our conifers. This was gobs of this stuff sort of flowing out and collecting in little pools. And then it, it breaks up and uh, in the process of uh, preservation, it also gets redeposited. And that's what makes the little, nod, little nodules that are picked up, the little amber pieces that are then polished. Fascinating. So, Joseph Yoon, tell us about yourself and what is Brooklyn Bugs? Hey, everybody. I am so happy to be here. And um, Brooklyn Bugs, we are Edible Insect Ambassadors. We work to raise awareness and appreciation for edible insects and help explain why the UN's FAO endorses them to address food security and sustainability but the idea of just changing your diet and eating something that has such an extreme visceral reaction is a bit of a reach. And so we love to work interdisciplinarily with artists and musicians and writers and creatives to help employ the fine arts and visual arts and creative arts in order to translate this idea and messaging to help to normalize it and really get people to realize that the majority of the world's nations are already eating insects. It's smart food, it can be delicious. So what are we missing out on? Uh, so that, that's a big part that, that of what we are doing. And uh, I think it's just so fortunate that we've been able to, to tour around and work with a lot of different museums and uh, universities. And so uh, we're looking forward to hopefully resuming our, our global tour uh, later later this year and uh, definitely next year. Can I can I caution you away from the slogan for whatever restaurant you guys make of of using the slogan? It can be delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, right. It is delicious, right? Well, you know the you know the reasoning is that people presume that insects are going to taste gross. And so when I say it can be delicious, it's because they think it, they just automatically presume it's going to be gross. Right. And so they're, they're a bit, but you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I should actually uh, rephrase that from, from, from now on. Maybe, uh, thank <laughs> well, you. it is, I mean. A lot of onions and garlic. <laughs> yeah. It can be well, <laughs> that is when you bring that up, it's such a tricky thing because so much of, we've, we've, talked on the show before of so much of taste has uh much less to do with the tongue and taste buds than what your average person would assume what it consciously feels like and and so much more of it is the 
present uh, the presentation and the atmosphere and the story that the chef's telling about it and everything else all leads into the experience of of enjoying it and and, and uh, you know like the uh, I don't know there's there's studies where they put like red dye and white wine and have uh, sommeliers describe it and they use words typically associated with red wine when describing. Uh, the taste of it and just that sort of thing. So, so I think that, um, uh, yeah, and this this kind of gets into cultural entomology, which you guys are all into, which is that's in in a culture where this is, I would say, probably ninety eight percent of people are kind of maybe naturally off put by the idea of eating insects and are, are unfamiliar with it. Oh no, um, you're. Your numbers are way off, Shane. Um, you think that, it's higher? <laughs> no, far far lower than that. And, and I and I think that there are really? a lot of wild presumptions made because to to you're gonna have to excuse that to white America, um, oh, because well, sure because Anglo Westerners have a very narrow view, and eating is very culturally it's there's like a cultural status associated with eating, and. Unfortunately, Anglo-Western, the Anglo-Western world has stigmatized the act of eating insects. And I, and I right. preface Anglo-Western because Native Americans were eating insects way before we were here. And so it'd be erroneous for me to say what the Western world. Western world. Right, right, um, right. So I would say that for... All right, in- 98% of white people? Can we... <laughs> No, I would I would even drop that down to like ninety percent because there okay. are the new self uh, coined foodies out there that love yeah, trying yeah. new food and experiences. Plus, you have to think about all the people that are concerned about the environmentalism and sustainability. And so, when you clump those two groups together, I'm going to say that twenty to twenty five percent of Americans are at least open to the idea when actually presented oh. with insects as food. Open? That's yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're in you're in Brooklyn too, which is like a little bit of a, a echo chamber of it's like Barrett and I are in Wisconsin, and I think it's like where where I, I've been. I I I got a grant to work at <laughs> UW Madison, and and also Montana State, Purdue University, IUPUI, a lot of Midwestern states that invite me, who yeah. you think of as cattle and pork country. So why would they invite someone working with edible insects yeah, yeah. to go and talk? It's it's fascinating and uh, well, yeah. that's encouraging to hear. I'm a fan. I, I've eaten insects in Barrett's lab. I'm I'm into it. I want more people eating insects. I just I think that the majority of of people have never even uh, like heard of that as an idea. I, I don't know. It just seems like a little bit of a tough sell sometimes. Well, it is, but but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to educate and outreach and work right, on our right. outreach because if you didn't know how to eat a garlic and Barrett was like, Shane, I love garlic. You got to try it. And you go, okay. And you just pop a clove before he tells you how to eat it. You'll be like, oh my God, this is r- repulsive. How do you love this? Oh. And Barrett's like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. You're supposed to cook it. And then you let <laughs> yeah. out the natural sugars and it's so delicious. And that's the thing is that Americans still are eating essentially raw garlic. We have not learned how to cook with it, how to present it as food, how to integrate it into our food. 
and about the functionality of insect protein. And so mm. even if you're eating it at Barrett's lab, with all respect to Barrett's culinary acumen, I, I don't know whether or not that that's uh, uh, a fair way to judge Entoc right. cuisine and like what the possibilities are with it. For and sure. To, I'm 100%. Uh, and uh, listen, I mean, I'll eat an oyster and like... If, uh, zooming out, there's <laughs> yeah. there's not much grosser than eating an oyster if you're detached from the experience of it of it being. That, that's what I'm saying. If you take something like an oyster and present it like, well, this is a, in a fancy restaurant in this in this expensive thing that you're putting. People are like, ooh, I guess I'll have this boogery thing slide down my throat. It's I, all that I'm trying to say is presentation is. Is yes. kind of important, and there's a lot of there's a lot of unnecessary, um, mistaken mental barriers that people have from enjoying insects, which they should. If they just realize they most people like honey, and if they realize where it's been, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a very good <laughs> ah, point. And Jean, especially Waldhonig or uh, forest honey, which is mm-hmm. coming not from the nectar of flowers, but from yeah. the extra of true bugs yeah well gene you bring up a great point because on i i was quoted on npr they're like i was like uh what's so weird about eating insect protein if we already eat insect regurgitation yeah <laughs> like, really yeah. at the end yeah. of the day it's like you think and oysters filter hundreds of gallons of water yeah. oh yeah and then we like ruthlessly just shuck them oh, while they're yeah. alive and slurp them down when they're alive i mean Come on. Yeah. Yeah. In my ecology class, one of my test questions has always been, you're eating a oyster on the half, a live oyster on the half shell. Are you acting as a carnivore, <laughs> herbivore, or detritivore? What, expl- <laughs> defend your answer. What was that last word? Detritivore. What's that? They feed off of uh, decaying matter. Oh. And so, uh, and it turns out it's all three. Wow. Oysters are decaying matter? They're eating. They've got decaying matter in their in their they're processing it. Oh, I so see. They, okay, yeah. They say, right. So they they you it depends. You take the whole thing. You're eating the whole animal. You're not eating just a little bit of it. You're not cutting off like the taking the the thigh meat off a chicken. You're eating it all. Yeah. All the organs, everything. You guys want to get philosophical? What do you think ethically? Uh, I don't know if I should just present what my opinion is and my bias in terms of. You're caring about eating a thing that has feelings or something like that, right? Are do you do you eat do you eat the the muscle and and the and the oyster or do you have insects? Because I would I would say that um that the that having a brain means that that's more ethically taboo than something that's just like a filter in the ocean. Thoughts, questions, concerns. By the way, I eat meat, but just curious. Well, I, I think more than oysters, if you look at mammals and livestock, that then we're then we're putting a comparison with like brains and brains. Yeah, and, yeah. And a greater neurological system, more receptors to pain. And I, I also am an omnivore. I mean, I'm a chef. I, 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 I almost have to eat everything. So I and my curiosity demands that I do. But I've lowered my meat intake drastically since I've started my work with insect protein. Um, we, we all have to make certain decisions in our life about where we find the threshold. And when people see a packaged good in their grocery in some like styrofoam container, and it's like what they associate as their delicious steak, 
but not process and think about the whole cattle and the whole process of what their life was prior to it ending up in that form. Um, you know, it, it, there's a lot of consideration there. I, I put great respect into where our food comes from, a great value in that as well. And so while I, while I still do eat everything, I try to be as responsible as I can and, and uh, really limit the amount of red meat that I personally eat. Yeah, I eat everything as well. I just have a, I've had this conversation with vegan friends where I'm like, well, can't you eat oyster? Like it doesn't have a nervous system. It's not like if your issue is, is like suffering or whatever. And, and then related um, you know, when I, when I talk with uh, the, you know, the many like 350 different scientists or whatever that I've had on, on the show, insect studies, very easy to get, uh, clearance from, you can pull wings off, you can like do kind of whatever you want. Not so much with, uh, with critters and mammals and such, but it's, uh, I don't know, just, just an interesting thought. Darwin wrote that all all animal life kills and uh, people that are worried about uh, uh, killing life. And I have uh, my good friend, Dr. Muckerhide, sister of charity, made a comment once. She's life is life is life. Yeah. Every time you shower, you're killing millions of bacteria. Your, your yeah. belly button has around 11, about, uh, what is they, they, I think what the number is like 1,800 different species of bacteria live in the human navel. And 1,100 mm-hmm. of them are new to science. I'm, I'm taking this quote from a professor at the University of North Carolina. He says, like the rainforest in there. And, and, <laughs> that, and, and every time in you the shower, belly button? You're, you're in, the, in the belly button. That's and why so, I don't touch it. I just something. let it. I let it be. I don't look in there. I don't think about it. I don't wash it. When and, people and, ask you why you're in the shower so long, you got to do a scoot shake. Yeah. And, and you've got about six to 800 species of bacteria living in the crook of your arm and your elbow where it bends. So if you shower today, you kill life. You brush your teeth today, you kill life. Uh, and now it's not it's not a high, uh, the, the higher grouping of life as we we're talking about with a, a central nervous system, but we do kill. We kill all the time. I'm I'm a thousand percent in agreement with you. I was just kind of curious what what your thoughts were on that. If you've been, I, I imagine you've been asked before. Of course, we're all drawing our lines in arbitrary ways, right in the sand. Right, and and in the case of bivalves, like the any mollusk does have a nervous system. So if you go by just having nerve cells and a system, mm-hmm. whether or not there's a central nervous system with a compartmentalized brain is that a line you draw um Mm. if you see my octopus teacher the documentary do you then discontinue eating octopuses because you see how amazing they are at problem solving i had just become fond of grilled octopus right before seeing (laughs) that documentary i'm like ah that kind of soured the experience but yeah, all, all just all of these all of these various things for better or worse or whether they actually are a true reflection of reality or what's ethical or what that even means, they do influence what we take in and our perception of food and everything else. You know what one thing that I had to sort of um come to grips with is that I probably collected more cicada more uh gene you're gonna have to excuse me because i just say brood x because it's so much cooler to say than brood 10. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, so excuse me uh i i've sorry what's that what's that word mean well well i say brood x and technically oh. it's it's brood 10 
Um, but I, I've been saying Brudex just uh, all over the place. Um, but I, I've probably collected more Brood X than anyone, uh, I- anyone in the world. Um, and I've also collected them. Uh, I mean, I've probably collected uh, hundreds, over a hundred thousand of them. And mm-hmm. and it's and it's serious because like I as I'm collecting them, I mean they're so beautiful. I have so much respect for how amazing, magical, and beautiful they are. And so there has to be a great purpose. There has to be conviction and belief in what I do in order for me to collect hundreds of thousands of these mm-hmm. incredible creatures. And so that there was a you know I I had to come to terms with myself and believe in my mission and my work and celebrate that the world has collectively never spoken more about eating insects than right now at this very present moment. And it's it's really to kind of tackle larger issues that we have, not today, but really for future generations. And what are we gonna, what kind of problems are we gonna leave for them? What kind of solutions will we leave for them? And I think that insects will ultimately unlock a big answer to where we get our food. And the fact that we were able to be a part of the global zeitgeist for like months. I would see articles of my friends and colleagues in newspapers and and on the TV like every day. And it's like, wow, we are not just pushing the needle right now on the interest in entomology, in conservation, in the life of insects and on edible insects. We have smashed that needle like never before and is just fascinating. And so it's like, yes, I believe in my work. And so that's what allowed me to capture and essentially euthanize so many of these uh, incredible cicadas. Well, this is one contrast to that, if I can, uh, is um, it was in the 1890s. The USDA said that brood 10 was going to go extinct in time. They repeated that in 1919. And the research that Frank Young and I did in 87 in northern Illinois, northern Indiana, excuse me, found a significant decline in their population. Northwest Ohio, now half the counties have lost periodical cicadas because of deforestation, not because of eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but they've yeah, got yeah, there, yeah, they've, of course. Thank you for that clarification. They, 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 they clear cut so much forest that there's these little pockets that they, the population they were producing uh, is now gone. And even mm-hmm. though it sounds crazy, Brood 11 went extinct in 1954. That was a major emergence in 1699 and 1716. I've got firsthand accounts I published in my book, Periodical Cicadas of the Plague and the Puzzle. And uh, the last living Brood 11 cicada found was in 1937. Mm. And so since then, we've not been people going back and looked and looked and looked. And of course, that disappeared not because of eating. <laughs> but uh, they, it disappeared because of clear cutting. It was just outside of Boston, clear cutting, urbanization, getting wood, for, uh, you know, cutting timber for wood for how, building materials. Uh, you know, every time you put a, a interstate in, you cut through some swath of forest land in the Midwest. Right. Uh, in the eastern deciduous forest, that's going to fraction, uh, uh, sort of, if you will, pocket or create little pockets of cicada habitat, which is constantly being encroached upon. Mm. And and what what were uh, some of the consequences of uh, Brood 11 going extinct. What what happens then? Well, the, the, in fact, that's one of the interesting things. If all the periodical skaters disappeared, it, the forest will still be here. Uh, right, right. They, they do a lot of ecological good. They turn over a lot of soil while they're immatures. The holes they produce when they come out of the ground uh, are, are like a natural aeration for the soil. And here in the Midwest with these 
hot, dry summers we're getting, those holes persist all summer long. So when it does rain, instead of all that water running off the surface, goes down into the holes and helps water the trees. The uh, food pulse that's provided when they come out of these numbers, and Joseph knows what that food pulse is all about. I mean, it's enormous. Even things like squirrels, which are primarily uh, herbivores, are ch- I've been watching them for the last two weeks, eating us, you know, don't forget these plant matter over here. I'm going to eat this delicious cicada. And uh, uh, that is beneficial in, in helping some populations actually recover from impacts of the past and so on. The uh, female laying her eggs in the trees makes the trees look like they've been hit by a hailstorm. But there was a a wonderful article published in 1869 in the original American Entomologist. It was titled, Out of Evil Cometh Good. And it was (laughs) in 1869, in the year after Brood 10 and Brood 19 came out simultaneously, orchardists in Missouri and in Illinois were saying, we are having a bumper crop of our fruit trees. And they realized all these trees had been naturally pruned by the cicada uh, egg laying, which caused some of the branches to break off. And the flower set the next year, the leaf set was enormous. Uh, mm. So that was a beneficial. Then they all die. Yeah. And as they die, they rot. And for those of us here, we're smelling that now, by the way. Uh, I'm not. I'm inside, so I'm not smelling this in a minute. But uh, uh, those nutrients go into the soil and form this wonderful nutrient cache around these trees where the carcasses have collected. And that's the saints that helps sustain the tree and the cicadas that are sucking on that uh, tree root. So it's just uh, winning the lottery for the ecosystem every every time that they come it, around. It, provi- it provides an opportunity for things to recover. Uh, you know, we have the uh, emerald ash borer wiping out 16 billion ash trees in Ohio, mm-hmm. and these pockets of open spaces are now being filled in, and we're finding predominantly mostly maples filling in these spaces. So the forest mm. is changing, but it, it provided an opportunity for other things to come into these spaces. Uh, and so and more more maple uh, uh, winged fruits are being produced to help get into those spaces because of a cicadas. That's so good. if so if I could back up a little bit, brass tacks, why why you're here in the first place. So like you said, it's been happening for months, media coverage everywhere. I'm, I don't follow media stuff much so i'm usually always a little slow and behind on what's going on in the news but um uh i'm more sane because of that but i i have a uh so so this is um without knowing a a terrible a, a terrible amount about cicadas this is kind of uh uh joe what you were alluding to this is kind of the haley's comet for astronomers or whatever every time Halley's comet comes around you're going to if you're an astronomer you're getting a call you're you're taking interviews people are buying telescopes and and this is kind of uh you're seeing that needle move and so what happened with uh cicadas recently let's let's do a little 101 for people that also live in a cave like myself and just haven't don't even know what a cicada is don't know why they made the news recently why don't we do a little 101 yeah bear I think I should start with the origin of cicadas. And this comes from Socrates through Plato. Are you ready? The story goes that the cicadas used to be human beings who lived before the birth of the muses. When the muses were born and song was created for the first time, some of the people of that time were so overwhelmed with the pleasure of singing that they forgot to eat or drink. So they died without even realizing it. It is from them that the race of the cicadas came into being, and as a gift from the muses, they have no need of nourishment once they are born. Instead, 
they immediately burst into song without food or drink until it is time for them to die. After they die, they go to the muses and tell each one of them which mortals have honored her. Wow. So that's where they all started. That's where they came from, <laughs> more or less. Wait, you said that was Socrates that wrote that? Well, Socrates didn't uh, uh, have any surviving writings, as far as I know. So it's through Plato, through a translator. Oh, through Plato's, oh, yeah. So a couple... Pla- Part of my ignorance, geez, thinking that Socrates <laughs> wrote anything. A couple steps removed. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm I'm happy to riff on on some cicadas, but I mean, I, I I'll I'll let the entomologists go first since that that's their area. Yeah, it might be important to also cite the first literary inclusion of cicadas, and that's from the Iliad. They yes. sat there on the tower, these Trojan elders, like cicadas perched up on a forest branch, chirping, soft, delicate sounds. Seeing Helen approach the tower, they commented softly to each other. Their words had wings. But Gene, maybe we should go in a more biological direction right now. Well, well we can we can we can look at the first time. Barrett. We Thanks can look at the sure. first time periodical skaters were report, recorded by Europeans. Now, the indigenous peoples of the Americas knew about them for centuries, for thousands of years. But there's a a piece uh, written by the second governor of of Plymouth Colony, who. Uh, was the first person to write and actually write down the occurrence of the skaters. He wrote it occurred in 1634, although he got the date wrong on his uh, in his book. He put 1633 at the top of the history. It's from the, the history the plantation. <laughs> I'm glad to know people have been doing that for a long time, forgetting to change the year on the checkbook. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it, yeah. And, and if you read this, he's got all these things. You know, you know then they're out of chronological order for the year oh by the way back in <laughs> anyway he wrote and the spring before especially all the month of may there was such a quantity of a great sort of flies like for bigness to wasps or bumblebees which came out of holes in the ground and replenished all the woods and ate the green things and made such a constant yelling noise as made all the woods ring of them and ready to deaf the hearers they have not by the English been heard or seen before or since. But the Indians told them the sickness would follow. And so it did in June, July, August, and the chief heat of summer. That's the first That's the first observation. Now, he, he started writing, he wrote the first 10 chapters in, uh, by 1630, and then went back and edited and added things in. That's what happened, why he put it in the wrong place. He stopped writing in, 18, in 1650. And if they had emerged, if they did emerge in 1633, they would have emerged in 1650, but he didn't. The next year in 1651 is when they should have emerged. That's the that's the brood that's still in Plymouth Colony to this day. And so he'd stopped writing a year before. So it's like if they had come out again, he should have mentioned that, you would think. <laughs> but the uh, now to take that one step further, the first oh, Gene, mention. Real, yes. real quickly, what, why do you think that? He thought that they were eating green vegetation because we know they don't. The, they and don't, two, he, what do you think the sickness was that followed? Because we know that they don't carry any the, disease or pestilence. That's right. Yeah. The uh, eating the green things is because the leaves turn brown when the female oh, later eggs. Oh yes, yeah. right. And the sickness was basically what's, what we now think is that it was an influenza 
and other disease brought by the Europeans that that uh, inf- inf- uh, afflicted the uh, indigenous peoples because they didn't have that immune reaction to it. Oh, so the so it was like it, it was like the five escape the skate bug. That's yeah. right. It was like it was like the five G towers in COVID sort of situation. They like happened right. kind of around the same time. Must be a connection there. <laughs> no, you'll you'll notice at this time he didn't call them locusts. In but fact, he the called first, them that before, though, right? Uh, or, they, not, or that, they, were, they were never called locusts until hmm. the first time Brood Ten was recorded, which was in seventeen fifteen, and that's when uh, Andreas. Uh, uh, Sandel wrote in his diary the, this this record, and the church where he uh, where he preached is still standing in Philadelphia, and I I haven't received it. I have hope that they were still the skaters would still emerge around the church because that's the Brood Ten mothership. What <laughs> I'm gonna go the next month to to go. I, well, I I didn't make any plans for it, but I am now. Well, if well, that is the if that's the mothership of Brood Ten. I am gonna go. Look for wings and look for skins, because the 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 last those will be you'll you'll be able to find in a month for sure. But uh, no one has sent me anything. Yeah, I was gonna say likewise. um, I I've put out all my reaches and deals. I've been contacting everyone I know in any uh, cicada anywhere where the emergence occurs, asking for like field sightings, reportings. What what's going on? Do they hear it? Do they see it? And uh, in Philadelphia, I've sadly heard of nothing. Oh well, well, my, you know, I'm, I'm the I, I designed and then helped create the app Cicada Safari, and uh, I'm I, we now have 196 thousand downloads of the app, and uh, we now uh, have it. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry. What, what what is this for the listeners? It's a it's a, a free phone app called Cicada Safari, which encourages people to go t- download this app and go out on your own Cicada Safari. If you see a periodical cicada, you take its picture and you submit it via the app. And then I have 25 colleagues that help look at every single photograph, and we mapped it. We have a map now of of where Brood Ten is, and uh, we has as of today have. 560,000 photographs from this year alone. It's a great, it's a font of information. Look at every single picture. We've looked at every amazing, and of those, do you uh, ever get sick of looking at cicada pictures? Oh. Like, uh, like when you when you're a cook at Taco uh, uh, Bell, uh, you can't eat it uh, anymore. Uh, 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 a beautiful, a beautiful cicada is like a beautiful woman. <laughs> Especially when your wife is out there helping you collect, it's just to be. I remember, I remember hanging out with uh, like Robert Trivers in in uh, Jamaica. If, if you know him, evolutionary biologist, and studies lizards, and he's showing me these lizards, and he's showing me this picture on his phone. He's like, "Oh, look at this one. This is a real hot female here." He had like a a real eye for what what turns on the lizards in the in the and and what what men were the hunky ones and stuff. Do you develop a do you develop like a that sort of relationship with the cicada like you know which ones are going to do real well mating and just by just by looking shane you would love to know this real real quick factoid as surely as you can tell the difference between a male and female you can tell the difference in a female or male cicada mm-hmm. the, the look is so obvious that uh you just take one glance and it's like well, on the underside, not from the top side necessarily, right? I 
I don't think right. you can tell from the top side, but when you look on the bottom, you could clearly tell the uh, the ovipositor. Uh, yeah, you've got to look that, at the. That's you, it. You've got to look at the naughty bits. Yeah, yeah right, that's like it. This. No, no other sexual dimorphism. No, no size yeah. difference. No, um, no advertising in the males. Nothing. Just, just got to look at the bits, huh? Yep. How do they know? How do they know, Gene? Well, the the male calls, the female is silent. And so the male's calling uh, and uh, the uh, female responds by flicking her wings in response. And unless it's a a fungus infected uh, male cicada, that's the ideal way for uh, uh, cicadas to tell apart. And then once they're close enough together and they're doing their mating call, we do know things like a study number that took mated pairs and compare the average size of the male of the ma- of those successfully mating cicadas with the entire population. Found that the the mating males were actually a, a little larger uh, than the overall population. So uh, size matters. And important mm-hmm. to note for the audience: so that if you do flip the male and look at the venture, you've got these large plate-like structures called timbals, and they they vibrate rapidly. And there's a resonating chamber below, a hollow area, so the whole body creates this. This is why you watch on YouTube, audience. There you go. Oh, and to the fungus, Gene, this is a good segue to talk about Mm -hmm. why 13 years, why 17 years. So of the 3,335 described species of cicadas, we have seven, and they're only in the East United States that are periodical. Mm -hmm. And well, it's now been like after we've got two more that have been found that are periodical. There is an eight-year cicada in Fiji and a four-year cicada in India. Really, what? they're not prime numbered cicada no. periodicals. No. no fools. Gene, then, can you but, can you send predators me... are going to be able to predict every four eight to years. eight years? It's yeah. so easy. Come on, Gene, can well, you, you got to throw a papers? thirteen at me, a seventeen. Sure, throw me off a little. Oh, bit. that's good to know. So now. Potentially nine species or so, right? And yeah, but those are. But again, they're they're periodical, but they're not in the U.S. The seven species we have in the U.S. are unique to are endemic to the U.S. Now, what's really interesting is with those eight and nine years. Is that correct? Or eight and four years? Eight and four. Eight and four. Yeah. Neither are prime numbers, and they're that is correct. smaller durations and time. So the two hypotheses that tend to be presented. With respect to or trying to explain yeah away we better explain to people why we're talking about prime numbers right now maybe we so, should present those hypotheses and then place these eight and four year new periodical cicadas sure. in and context might i also say one one thing just moving forward just for my own just so i know are all entomologists uh this um passionate about what they do or uh, do i have a sampling error where Barrett's an enthusiastic person and tends to gravitate toward other enthusiastic people. What if I or said an the three of us are thing? dullards in the context of the world of <laughs> 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 I'd be shocked um, all right, to meet all right. a, a non, an unpassionate entomologist. Entomologist. I mean, they are aliens living amongst us. They're endlessly fast. I just saw, I was paddleboarding just yesterday. I had some fly land on me that had a slightly different, like, wing color than I'd seen before. Some species had never landed on me before. And I was like, 
Wow, flies are so it just takes seeing something a little bit different to be reminded of how how amazing um life is. And then it bit me, of course, but uh, <laughs> and it became but, all the more still. amazing. Cicadas yeah. don't bite, by the way, Shane, just so none of your audience members think that although they, they can were ever poke you with a proboscis. Yes, Fan. indeed. And that could kind of stick and kind of feel like they're pinching you or something. But a little warning, a little warning poke. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, cause, cause males have that with a lot of insects, right? Where they can kind of like poke at you, like scare you, like you think yeah, you're going to get Yeah, actually, a number of hymenoptera, the bees, wasps, ants, uh, the males can give up sort of that warning, turning up yeah. of the the third segment of the body in almost a a stinging postural state. But it's just yeah, because who's going to call that bluff? <laughs> no one. <laughs> no one. So males An can't sting because stingers are modified egg-laying devices. So let's let's talk about math. Let's get into the theory that's of of cicadas and and sure. their rhythms and prime numbers. It's uh, it's great. I, I actually I wasn't doing cicada research. I was just reading a book about um, geometry and came across this fun little tidbit. Well, we've got uh, two life cycles, 13-year and 17-year. They're both prime numbers. The leading hypothesis right now, if you look at, at the, how they originate, if you look at the distribution of the two life cycles, the 17-year cicadas are north, 13-year cicadas are south. And uh, we know from some wonderful work uh, uh, by Teji Soto et al., uh, we now have some more molecular data on their evolution. The common ancestor of the genus Magis cicada, uh, 3.9 million years ago, diverged into one large species and one small species. The small species then diverged two and a half million years ago into two small species. That gives you our three species groups. When you talk about species groups, both the 13 and the 17 year skaters, there's a septendecim for 17 years and tridecim for 13 years. Their calls are very similar. They look very similar, although the tridecim has a slightly different coloration on the uh, underside of the abdomen. Then there's neotridecim, which looks just like septendecim, and the calls are very similar, but they're all three about the same length and size. But so we call all three of those the decim because their calls so similar and their patterns tend to be, and they'll be alike. So that's a little background. We have the same, same thing going on with the other two species. There are uh, a 17 to 13 year form, which calls very similar. Uh, it, the leading hypothesis is that the periodical cicadas evolved from a th evolved their 13-year life cycle first. It evolved in the refugia south uh, south of the ice sheets during the glaciation, mm. and uh, uh, and and one of the ideas is that the longer life cycle evolved in response to this very hazardous time period, and it looks like they've got genetic switches that can trigger four years of development. 13 and, four, mm. and 17 are, are four years apart. But they sometimes, I've got 13-year skaters that came out after nine years, and we've got 17-year skaters that came after 21 years. Some 17-year oh. skaters will come out four years early than 13 years, that there's a genetic switch that can trigger four years. Which, by the way, there's your eight and four. <laughs> and so mm. the, the mathematical model would be N times four plus one for, periodic, for the northern periodical cicadas. The others would be just N times four. Uh, Interesting. So, now, as the now, of course, what really gets us squirrely is you've got the 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 retreat of the glaciers four times during the last three and a half million years. So we've got uh, what happened most recently, uh, not more than twenty miles north where I'm sitting right now, was the extent of the last ice age. Uh, 
It was just in, just north of Cincinnati. By That was 20,000 years ago. By 14,000 years ago, it had retreated up to north of Toledo. As it retreated, the forest came in and moved slowly northward, and the cicadas came with it. And so the thought is that if you can switch these life cycles by this four years, those is it warm enough to come out in 13 years? No, it might be too cold. You're a little close to the ice sheet. You hold on and try another four, another four years later, which in four years, how much did it retreat? Was that enough to be more? And so that's that might be what that's been suggested, the trigger between the 13 and 17 year groups. But we do know there's a lot, there's some fluidity. Uh, Brood 10 here came out four years ago in massive numbers. And uh, when uh, Brood 10 comes, uh, those that come out after 21 years, it's going to be inside at the same time as Brood 14. And we can't tell them apart. They don't wear little numbers on their back. So it's kind of rough that way. They don't so how, wear how numbers on their back. How did backs? you identify it in the beginning then that you said you were able to tell genetically that even though it came out four years later, how did you know it's Brood 10 and not Brood, the, the, the Brood four years later? There, it depends on if you've got a, an area where Brood 10 occurs and no other cicadas occur in that area. Oh, okay. And it comes out in an area where nowhere else. This, for example, Eastern Ohio is predominantly Brood 5. And so when Brood 5 came out, had an acceleration uh, the last go around and came out during Brood 1, there are no, no brood one cicadas known in eastern that eastern half of Ohio. So the only population they come from is five. Mm-hmm. And so back to their evolution, uh, two and a half million years ago, now you got three species. In the last 300,000 years is when the broods evolved. And, uh, and in some cases, the broods might have evolved just in the last 25, 30,000 years. So it's you know, they're almost instantaneous evolutionarily speaking that's not you know 20,000 years is, is nothing for their evolution so that's the and so when you bring in the, this geological model it really helps you know you, you look at where the cicadas are in Ohio compared to where brood 10 let's say is in Pennsylvania and you can see the influence of where the ice sheets were how far did they go south and mm. uh, now they're responding uh, to uh, to life in this inner war this inner warming period uh, between the, uh, the the ice ages and uh, we know that, uh, for example, here in uh, Ohio, brood 14 is adjacent to brood 10. 14 is getting smaller over the last 200 years. 10 is getting bigger. They're accelerating slowly to come out four years early. Now we have instances now in southwest Ohio with uh, we've actually observed in the last 34 years where brood 10 cicadas came out four years out of schedule. They all didn't get eaten. And to the year 2000, five locations had enough cicadas that sang, mated, and reproduced. 13 years later, a few hundred came out. They all got eaten. 17 years after the year 2000, they came out in massive numbers again, joined by more accelerating cicadas. And we now have 33 locations in Southwest Ohio where they're singing, mating, and reproducing. We've actually seen the origin of a new population of brood six cicadas. And so it's what's sort of neat now that there's so much interest in periodical cicadas, and uh, we've got the news media helping us, and we've got things like the apps or whatever. We are now seeing these secrets that the cicadas have held on. Uh, these, the, it, it, it makes sense when you see oh, there's two life cycles are four years apart. You see these patterns out the eastern uh, U.S. Brood nines adjacent to five, adjacent to one. Uh, you know, there's something there's something that's consistent going on here. Now that we've seen the formation of a new population in Southwest Ohio, uh, it's clearly these these accelerations. And then why would they? Why would that be beneficial? Did I anticipate your question, Barrett? Yeah. So you've, <laughs> it you've turns- basically you've suggested the origin, possible origin of the trait. Now let's talk about maintenance of the trait, if indeed it is. The maintenance, uh, Monty Lloyd, the great cicada worker who from the University of Chicago, 
had a hypothesis and he and I did some experiments on it. We didn't get to complete it before he passed away. Uh, but we found anecdotal evidence to suggest this is the case. When you come out four years early, you may get out of sync with the fungus. And so old established popular broods get may have higher incidences of fungus if they if some of those people some of those people some of those cicadas i think of as people some of those cicadas shift uh they can get lower infection rates well that's the next thing we need to study on that uh on on that and can i mm. add that apparently now i have to talk to my co- my mycologist colleagues those who study fungi but apparently that single fungus is the longest lived fungus lasting the 17 years necessary to wait out the next opportunistically arrival or emergence of say brood 10. So this is yep. an amazing thing is, is this long duration out of the picture and a prime number, the key ingredients to, uh, to preventing predators or parasites from say, um, matching well, what are your this, life cycles. What are this? Yeah, one of the suggestions, we've always thought that it was too long, that there's no intermediate steps that a predator or parasite could evolve to match, to, mm. to live sustained by periodical cicadas. That, turn that around. Hold on one second, a, just because, just because Joseph, what are you, what are you trying to show us here? Oh, yes. Yeah, so uh, this is the Mosospora fungus, and you could see that the yellow fungus has eaten, the yellow white substance has eaten the bottom of this cicada mm. and it still is very very much alive until who knows how long um and it just loses its entire but like it continues to lose its body mass and just continues to try to mate thereby continuing to spread the fungus huh. and it has compounds similar to psilocybin and amphetamines which kind of help it to continue on um <laughs> so oh, it's yeah. tri- it's tripping and on speed yes. essentially <laughs> what a way to go wow <laughs> after 17 Amazing. years of being underground you have your first vision <laughs> as an adult and then shabang <laughs> i mean even adventurous humans usually don't mix psychedelics <laughs> and speed yeah no it's so far out what's what what the the correlation between this fungus and with the um and with the cicadas i mean what what a what a marvel in nature really yeah although the when what's what's the fungus the the relation with the 17 and 13 years and why the, the the prime number may not be important is that if this is such a way to get out of sync with all your specialized predators why it's only why is it only the periodical cicadas that are doing it and so that's yeah. some of the that's some of the discussion on the other side of the coin. Uh, I, I think that brings up Shane's point earlier that they're aliens. <laughs> well, but, but Gene, I mean, but Gene, you could. I mean, there are a few things out there that that are a specialty and a species that just nothing else has stumbled upon ever. And and what a long time to wait. I mean, there's there's a there's a cost involved there of waiting that long of things happening and as you're dormant the ice sheets or whatever else wiping you out right that's that's a tremendous cost to be to be um dormant for 
well, for well, they're 13, not, they're not, 17 they're years. They're not dormant, Shane, to be, to be clear. They're eating down there. Okay. And, and the idea that they're in diapause is, is, or hibernating is incorrect. Oh, and I see. And, and they're, Thank you. they're actually quite active, but working with a very slow metabolism because they're eating the xylem, which has like very little nutritional value, mm -hmm. which allows them to like just slow live this 17 year time period. But I'd love to know if either Barrett or Gene, what do we know about their lives underground for this whole period of time besides sucking on plant xylem? Can I? Well, uh, you go for it, Barrett. Well, I, I, I just wanted to go back to the idea that if you're somehow you must be going, touching on Shane's point, conferring some fitness benefits with these long durations underground because what is the alternative? The alternative is to have shorter or faster generation times, faster turnovers, so that the, by a numbers game, other species of cicadas may be deemed more successful on some metric. So the prime number, I feel like, except for these eight and four years that you're mentioning, may play a role for what we haven't mentioned, and that is this idea, the second potentially competing hypothesis, maybe non-mutually exclusive hypothesis, that it at least limits the amount of potential hybridization that would occur with a periodical cicada and another cicada, where you might potentially reproduce and those, those offspring would not carry the beneficial traits of the periodical cicada. Hmm. Is that right? Because hmm. um, you would have to match, even if, say, you're a cicada that um, uh, has a three-year life cycle, you're not going to hit that 13 years or 17 years, and you're going to limit not only predators and parasites, but potentially hybridization potential with immatures in the other life cycles. Of course, with the annual cicadas and the periodical cicadas, the periodical cicadas come out earlier than the annual cicadas. So you'd also have to shift when they come out in the year for them to hybridize. Oh. It's like the, the, the cicada killer wasp uh, comes out with the annual cicadas. And there, mm. I'm sure there have been instances in the past where some Johnny completely cicada came out, you know, was still around, let's say, July the 5th to the 10th, and a cicada killer wasp got it. But it's relatively rare, uh, actually quite rare, because uh, right now there's no cicada killer wasps out yet, but the cicadas are real, the, the, the periodical cicadas are dwindling rapidly. Have you seen the picture of the annual and periodical together this year? Because of the cold snaps that we've had, yeah. They, and right now they they start they start emerging early. Uh, uh, we had some come out about three four weeks ago in the southern states, in particular in Georgia. And uh, we uh, are right now we've had. Uh, yeah, they, I probably say very few of uh, any photographs at all of uh, of them together in the same area. But we have a lot of photographs of annuals, and so that's one of the reasons why to we got to catch those in cicada safari. We can approve a photograph as an annual cicada or a periodical cicada. And so we are, we're generating maps of those, although it's not our main focus, uh, but people love cicadas. So we, we have uh, people reporting cicadas out throughout the year. We've had reports from several countries, South Africa, Thailand, Australia, of uh, cicadas uh, coming out of those areas. But we really focus this, this big number on the periodical. I would love not only to hear Gene's response to Joseph's question about what's happening underground. But first, I'd love to hear what Gene was 
about to say in terms of these long durations and sustaining predators or parasites within a 13-year or 17-year period. So well, one of the difficulties, go ahead, do you want to add more to that? Yeah, so is it that you have variation in the trait and some come out a year early or a year late? Some do come out early, a year early and a year late, but too few to survive. Okay. Uh, I, variably, la uh, uh, we had here in, in CISA probably about 150 reports versus 9,000 <laughs> this year of cicadas. Mm -hmm. And it was just isolated ones here and there, no singing. Uh, no we, singing. Uh, 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 we couldn't, they're all being eaten. On the other hand, we had four year early cicadas come out last year in, in Chicago, all the way from Evansville across Chicago to Bolingbrook. And, uh, tens of places where they were singing, mating, and laying eggs. So now we've laid the groundwork for a new population of brood nine to come out in, uh, let's see, that'd be 20, uh, 2037. So it's worth noting mm. that it's important, even though you have these very predictable, protracted periods of emergence by these species, since natural selection has defined by Charles Darwin uh, really needs to have variation in a heritable trait. To have that year early or year late appearance might be their saving grace in a bad year. Mm -hmm. right? And it's not, and, and they can persist. So for example, if, if indeed brood 10 evolved from an accelerating brood 14, uh, they're both still with us. 14 those and, uh, it occurs oh. in fewer areas than brood 10. And so it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, if you, uh, uh, I, I did a paper for the Indian Academy of Sciences a few years ago where I looked at all the historical records of the of cicadas in Indiana, and I found a pattern that would suggest it would take about three three to four centuries for a brood to literally totally shift to another brood by four year acceleration. Huh. But uh, we have we have in Indiana cases where a, a large number of brood fourteen cicadas a century ago now just about 20 counties or so, 16, 20 counties have it. Whereas brood 10, then also essentially it was in every county. And now we see uh, brood 10 missing in about 15% of the counties or so. Uh, and now brood six is popping up. And so if you take, how many years has that happened to go through all that? It takes about three to 400 years for that to actually take place. And so this may have been going on constantly. Uh, and it may be a long-term response to uh, uh, this fungus that, hang, that hangs around his spores in the soil for 17 years. Fascinating. I I think you kind of already answered for me the question I was going to ask, but you were, you were talking earlier about, I'm still curious to hear the take on it, just uh, because we like talking about evolution on the show. Um, and when you were talking about what, two million years ago or whatever, when the uh, when the size split and there was a smaller and larger one that took off, when something like that happens, how how slowly, and I think you kind of answered it by saying you're seeing it happen slowly now, but how does it does it happen in in um, in small steps or are are there these instances within uh, insect like this where where you're having, uh, like punctuated equilibriums, whereas just the the female or or whatever gives birth to um, it, it, some species gives birth to both like a, the small and the large, or and the and the small don't get um, 
don't get eaten by predators as much and the large are like really sexy like look at that ass that's amazing <laughs> and those those two small and large ones just really take off and and the middle ones become old old news does that happen really quickly i mean quickly is a relative term i suppose but but how or or does it happen a little more gradually where something gets a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger or is it more of like a well, mutant. In, in, in nature, uh, forgetting about urban areas, the periodical skaters are adapted to different areas of the of the natural world. You find the large decimal species like upland woods, oaks, and what have you. Cass and I, for example, loves the floodplain. And mm-hmm. so you could have had an event where you have these the the the, the species here, and then you, once you have the the uh, uh, a change of where's where's the forest because they need the forest to live. That could have been part of this isolating mechanism uh, as they adapt to the conditions like. Uh, again, Monty Lloyd, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, wrote a paper, Why Are Cicadas More Common in the City? All three species occur in the city. And uh, we have, you know, what, what is a cicada looking for when she wants to lay her eggs? She's looking for a tree, usually in full sunlight, surrounded by low vegetation because they feed on grass roots for the first few weeks Uh or small veg- the roots of small herbaceous vegetarian for the first few weeks. And then by New Year's Day, they're 8 to 12 inches below the surface. We are in urban areas and our cemeteries, our churchyards, our schoolyards, any place where you got trees surrounded by low grass creating the ideal habitat for periodical cicadas. And all three species can are, are merging in and the, are, are choosing these areas. First of all, it's disturbed. That cast and I likes that. Could be an old oak tree, but that's next to the other trees. We're seeing these things. They'll fly up to a mile per emergence. Uh, and so uh, uh, I've watched uh, a natural area. One of my site sites is a cemetery in western Cincinnati. And there's this one center circular upland on the top of a bluff graveyard uh, cemetery section. It's almost all decim. About 40 yards away is a grove of uh, Bradford pears, all cast and I. Those Bradford pears are planted like three, four, before three emergences ago, probably back in 1970 or, uh, or so. And th- Surrounding area, Cass and I flew into the Bradford Pears, Sept and Decim stayed around the the uh, the oaks. This year I was at finding, I found a few Cass and I flying into the oaks. I found a couple of Sept and Decim trying out the Bradford, the, the, the Bradford Pear. But in nature, they tend to segregate. And so you're asking, how does this occur naturally or not? They're, uh, if we look at their evolutionary past, each of the three species was adapted to a slightly different uh, ecological framework, if you will. And we've just screwed it up by what we've done to the the world and that's what that's what helps add a little complexity to our, our and what and what about the uh when you when you said that they like sunlight are is artificial light drawing them towards city like not the, not not so they, they don't do what they do a lot of do not do a lot of spreading in the evenings it's they, they're the females looking for a tree that's going to survive 17 mm-hmm. years ah and so uh, Monty thought that that's going to be a tree. What you know, there's going to be a guaranteed of solar energy. So you're going to find a lot of these where they on the edge of the forest where they've caught all the trees, but they're they're all whatever the favorite tree, and they've laid their eggs in over 200 species of woody plants. So it's not like they've got one favorite and they're going to go there. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, we are creating ideal cicada habitat, which may be the refuge that saves them in the future. Gene, have you ever considered trying to? Uh, rear any cicadas or do we know any instance where people have tried to to rear the periodical cicadas uh yes uh in many in in, in many cases uh what what people did was they would actually take egg nests 
And uh, Monty Lloyd did this back in 1982, and I helped him uh, gather some of the data from 1999. Uh, uh, basically, you take large number of egg nests, and, uh, and he did this in 1982. It was a really neat experiment. Took all these egg nests from, from the Cleveland area, from Brood 5, and he took them to uh, Sioux City, Iowa, where cicadas do not occur. And he describes in his notes holding softball-sized mounds of cicada nymphs and then creating plots and spreading them in specific plots. And uh, they came up 17 years later. Uh, back going further, uh, Charles Marlott, who's the person that came up with the numbering system uh, for brood numbers and what have you, he did that in Washington, D.C. He took uh, egg nests and put them in his backyard and watched them come up 13 years later. When you say egg nests, what do you mean exactly? Like digging up well, the you, you, and- you, you Well, you uh, basically go to the tree and you clip off the end where the female is oviposited, mm-hmm. put them in a vial of water. We know from an experiment done by Moses Brad, uh, 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 Bartram, uh, the son of uh, John Bartram, he in, 18, in 1766 experimented with the cicada eggs. And he let those, some, some of them drop and during the flagging, some of the branches that have egg, eggs related drop to the ground. And if you let them drop to the ground and they dry up, the eggs will die. If they fall on the ground and, or if you put them, leave them on the tree or you put them in a vial of water or you stick them in the soil, the eggs will hatch. And so he uh, was able to, so what, what uh, Marla did is basically keep, uh, keep these egg nests, uh, the club, cut off the egg, where the eggs were laid in the tree, kept them moist, we went, put them in the backyard. Wait, that is a patient become- person, don't you think? Like, if, if well, you're a, if you're a pet owner uh, and you're going to get into the cicada game, you really gotta. And then, and then you have to imagine too when that thirteen, seventeen years rolls around. You know, you're excited to tell people you're sending out invites like a year or two before you're sending out save the dates. Yeah to come uh, check out what you've done. And then what if it's a dud? What if the firework doesn't go off? How disappointing. <laughs> I, I, well, I will, I will say that the first time Monty tried that, uh, he forgot to go back 17 years later to check. <laughs> Oh, oh, this was the year. Man, you forgot. This was before Google Calendar. You got to set. You set the alert for an hour before, a day before, two days before, a year before, two yeah, years year before. You got to. But I, every year I, but you I have, have an alarm. Had, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I've had I've, my first long term experiment. I started in 1991 and I couldn't uh, uh, I had to verify that nine years later It was the prediction that I made that we'd have an acceleration of brood 10. And then uh, in 2001, when I found uh, uh, that uh, we had a 13 year skate, some of my colleagues didn't believe that it was real. So we had to wait 13 years for that. <laughs> and then the question was and then the question was these thir- when they those the that came in the year 2000. Would they say 13 year or 17 year? So I had to wait till yeah. 2013 and 2017 to find the answer. Yeah. Now, if I worked on if I worked on fruit flies, I'd have this done in three months. That's right. Yeah. Right. But but no, I have to work on cicadas. That gives you time to 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 think. It gives you time to ponder, to think about yeah. what's going on. 
it's it's like the insectant version of a baseball game. Yeah, you know, it's we have time to say, hey, I want a hot dog, and you're not missing anything. <laughs> you know, it's not like basketball where it's gone. You can't, you don't have time. You're afraid to leave, but uh, it, it gives you time to to think and ponder. And uh, that's my uh, kind of job. I want to work Cicada Security <laughs> starting next year. Um, you know, I I was I was actually gonna bring up cicadas and bring it out to Long Island where they are going extinct. And when I talked to various people about it, I wish I had spoken with Eugene because I was discouraged from doing so because it could bolster the rat population or it could have like, it could have negative effects in a place like New York. Um, And so I was like, oh gosh, like what if like I bought up cicada nymphs and then they, and then they started and then they, they, they succeeded in Long Island and then rats emerged as well, and then they carried some disease, yeah. and then something happened, and I was like the, the point of uh, that. But so, so I was talked out of doing so, but I wish I had just done it. Well, that, you know, that would have been nineteen. That would have been in nineteen in twenty thirty eight. They might not have remembered you were the culprit. Well, yeah. I would have because I, I, I would have kept my my digital calendar. Yeah. I um, I think what you do is if you if you really if you're a real planner, um, what you do is. You plan the birth of your firstborn child around uh, the cicadas. That's when you. That's when you plant the cicadas. You're gonna have to keep it. You're gonna have to put some frost on or something around the 13 year mark so they <laughs> yeah, right. they, yeah, they so. know to stay in another four years. And then you have a heck of a graduation <laughs> uh, party. Yeah. That, that's, oh that's, gosh, that's, yeah. So that, that uh, Joseph, you have a whole adult in the time that it takes for them to come out. Joseph, Amazing. you do not want to be the person who brought the uh, gypsy moth from Europe to the United Correct, States right. to get some yeah. silk out of it. And that's why I, I just, I refrain from doing so, but I, I am thinking about trying to get more experimental. The reason why I asked about the underground life of the nymphs is like, can, can we trigger their response to shorten the year in, in a controlled lab situation where we can maybe trick them to come out in like three years, a periodical, for example, or, uh, you know. Yeah, per- for periodicals, that wouldn't that wouldn't work, apparently. Uh, they only molt four times during the 17 year period underground. And, yeah. uh, and but there are, they do, they keep track of time by monitoring the fluid flow of the xylem tissue. During the winter months when it's, when the trees are in their dormant stage, there's very little fluid flow in that xylem. But when the spring comes and the flower and the buds form and the leaves start coming out and the flowers said, it can detect that. And we have good experimental uh, uh, work. Uh, uh, Rich Carbon uh, did this in a greenhouse where he was able to overtop uh, trees and get cicadas to come out early. Here mm-hmm. in Cincinnati, in, in December 2006 and January 2007, we had one of the most incredible, wonderful, snowless time. It re, our highs were averaging, were reaching 65 degrees for several weeks. And my, I remember my, my, the, my maples started to bud, leaves started to form. And then in February, we had this hard freeze. All these things dropped. I remember because I had to sh- I had to rake leaves twice a year. That was terrible. <laughs> so then April and true spring comes and the trees budded again. They formed their leaves or flowers a whole bit. And where brood 14 was expected to come out in 2008, thousands came out in 2007, a year early. So they counted two years that year. And so, what well, we know how that we know we, get, we know that they're counting. That's what they're triggering on. What we don't know is how do they remember the count? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there's, 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 isn't isn't it 
not terribly uncommon for in developmental stages of insects or even like uh, uh, lots of different things to have to kind of have environmental triggers where Definitely. you have like a, a hormone of a of a predator of a fish that that gets recognized by the eggs that then triggers it to um, uh, to hatch early or to pick up and go or do some other thing to avoid that 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 is like a, a really nuanced little mm-hmm. what would it be like an epigenetic mechanism maybe not epigenetic but just an environmental um trigger well the, that, one of the one of the issues that we're talking about is that a 17 year cicada by the time they're 13 years old they're in their last instar that's the last state they're not going to vault again until they emerge from the ground so they're fully mm-hmm. grown at year 13 and 17-year skaters can be at that point after nine years. So it takes a long time to get there. You could probably take a 17-year skater, and if you could figure out a way of popping it out early, uh, that appears to be what happens for these early accelerations is we have these, uh, the leading idea that, that we have is that uh, we're going to have one of these mild winters with uh, two fluid flows in one year, and that triggers an extra molt within the first five years. What we know about what they're doing underground growth-wise is that 13-year skaters molt an extra time in the first five years compared to 17-year skaters. Okay, Gene. And so, so when they when these skaters that uh, that I looked at in 1991 were growing faster than I expected, based on what what the model was saying, I thought that we'd have they were coming out early, and they did. Uh, so that was a 17-year skater that, for whatever reason, molted extra, and that's probably related to uh, to our mild our uh, our milder winters. Hmm. Yes, Barrett, Barrett. Gene, what if you took first instar nymphs of either 13 or 17 year cicadas, and this is getting at Joseph's and Shane's uh, subtle questions, brought them into the lab, and you had false plants delivering xylem like crazy, could you affect juvenile hormone levels such that they would molt much more quickly, and then within two years to three years, you have your 17 year cicada, and then you could Ooh, actually, that's a fast actually do a PhD project on uh, periodical oh, cicadas. That is a lightning the, fast cicada. Well, wow. The, the issue there, well, there are some fractures we don't have control over. For example, uh, periodical cicadas have this endosymbiotic relationship with bacteria that mm. uh, there's two to three species that, uh, uh, that you know, the cicada doesn't have the genome to do everything it needs to do to survive. It depends on these bacteria, but they can't survive without the cicada. And so you've got the, these things all adapted to this nutrient-poor diet, metabolizing these things to produce another cicada. It's more than just not, it's not just speeding up the cicada. We've got to speed up the bacteria to do this well, as the well. Bacteria, and, uh, the bacteria, are they, are they for example, uh, making tryptophan or another amino acid available to the cicada, uh, an essential amino acid? I'm not sure, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about all the biochemistry. Okay. Uh, but uh, but it, uh, it it it's an endosymbiotic relationship that's critical for the survival of the periodical cicadas, and we're just getting a lot of work's being done on that with a number of people in, in Montana and at uh, Chris Simon's lab in Connecticut. And you think that the bacteria couldn't be sustained with a quick generation time to complement the cicadas, very slow, relatively. It's, slow. It, it's just it's just another factor. Okay. We don't know. I, you know, it's just another variable in there, huh. and we know that the mortal the mortality underground is high 
for example, uh, I, I would estimate under a couple of these trees that uh, that's in this one cemetery. Uh, at its peak uh, in 2004, we counted 356 holes per square meter. What? Ba- that, sound, that, that sounds like a, just like having a whole hole. Like, <laughs> like how can you how can you have that many tanky size holes in a meter? That at, sounds crazy. At a certain point, that Swiss cheese isn't cheese anymore. It's yeah, just right. a hole. Exactly. You just okay. have a full moon at well, that point. Uh, now yeah. let's let's do the math here. I've got my I got my iPhone calculator. Three hundred fifty six per square meter, and each female. Uh, will produce around 500, a little more than 500 eggs. I had a student count several hundred of these things. Uh, that means that 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 little one square meter, uh, assuming a 50-50 uh, sex ratio, will be responsible for the production of 89,000 eggs. Now, the area under just one of these trees, under one of those trees, I estimated about that there were uh, the equivalent of around 7,000 cicadas emerged. And assuming again that we have a 50-50 male-female ratio is 311,500,000 eggs under that one tree. Is anyone else a little disappointed Gene didn't do the math in his head? <laughs> oh, look. <laughs> I think he no, did actually. No. I think he did. He was, <laughs> yeah. It was just it, for it's show, his own right? humility yeah. that he brought out a calculator, yeah. and actually, it's a bogus calculator. So, Gene, so, <laughs> so we're talking about egg so mortality that, mostly, right? And then, yeah, but it, that, but so, yeah, we're looking. Well, that's how many the three hundred. Let's say just round numbers. Three hundred million eggs were laid. <laughs> wow. uh, we know that if, we know that if it flags, that'll kill half of them. If they turn brown, turn brown. So let's take this. So we're at 311. Now we're at 150 some. We're over 100 million. And yet the average number of adults that came out would be about 7,000. Wow. That gives you an idea of how the under the underground mortality is incredible. Because if they yeah. turn and go, they only move about a meter in their entire life underground. And so if they go one way and the truth's that way, the roots the other way, God. they're done. Gene, do we know? And there's you know, other thing. Do we know the more t- relative mortality of, say, annual or three-year cicadas? No, because when you dig up the nymphs, we're not sure what you know how, how long ago they were. Uh, okay. We can tell later. We can tell Anya. Uh, uh, we can tell you how many eggs are in each one. We can oh. tell you uh, uh, how uh, the uh, the uh, uh, whether a nymph is an annual or a periodical later in the life stage of the uh, annual. You, they're a little rounder and more robust. Uh, but because uh, I know uh, and in, without doing DNA work, I it's, know that uh, in Shane's can mind, be difficult. he's wondering. Should I be an annual cicada, three-year cicada, 13-year cicada, four-year, eight-year, 17-year? What are my chances? I mean, if you get to pick, which you might not, we know that after this life you do reincarnate as a cicada we know that much but you don't we don't <laughs> know right. yet if you get to pick which one you get to yeah be. we don't have a choice as to which one we reincarnate. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that hey, would you- that would explain human population if that were true because then all these people who've lived throughout time that all the entire human population would have to reincarnate into something Cicadas, you know, there are more cicadas on the uh, periodic yeah, cicadas good, on the earth this year than the human, human population. Yeah. yeah, so it's sort of like it just keeps growing. You may have come up on some, uh, found something that uh, we're not uh, really thought about. That's pretty good. Well, you guys, uh, you guys have an appetite to talk a little bit about. Uh, uh, 
food eating cicadas I, I was cicadas. I was actually that's that was my that was my next question was because because it, like we're we're nearing I don't have a particular time frame but I I always like to be um uh uh you know thoughtful mindful. of my mindful of my guests time and and we've had a We've had a fun discussion, so I don't want to um, sour by making go on for too long. I'm happy to hear any other cicada stuff that you guys have, but I def- I did want to transition back into Brooklyn Bugs. And eat- I want to hear about, first off, I do want to hear about eating uh, cicadas, but then generally, uh, Joseph, I, I just want to hear, uh, next time I'm in Brooklyn, I get through New York once in a while, I'm in Brooklyn. I want to hear about like a perfect meal um, uh, for uh, uh, that, you know, uh, that I should check out when I'm in town. I, oh, yeah. I want to eat a bunch of insects. I would say the perfect meal would be uh, at uh, potentially if we time it uh, would be a, a meal that I that I curate for you, a tasting menu. Really? Um, yeah. Which I, you know, that, that that really would be the the finest way and something that That's why I really I have the show. It's it's the it's the perks. It's the VIP treatment. Well, I, I am hoping to uh, to go back to to Wisconsin. Um, I, I'm still in contact with Barrett and uh, and other professors and colleagues that I know oh, at UW Madison. Um, and I I actually got interviewed at with WSSC the Madison's radio station. Um, college radio station, mm-hmm. and so I, you know, I, I'm hoping to to make a visit out there. Uh, but I, but I've had some startling and amazing discoveries with uh, with insects and edible insects because of my work with cicadas. It's just over the past two months. Hit um, me. One, people somehow are more willing to eat insects than we realize. This blows your two percent, <laughs> my ten percent. 20% way out of the water because there are so many instances of people in 15 states across America. Joseph, if you think wildly... this is the first time someone's made a fool out of me on this show, I mean, <laughs> oh, no, you, you are not, not doing make, anything this is special not, here. This is not to make a fool this out of you at all. This is every single episode. Uh, so, so what's been really fascinating is, okay, so we have this like incredible magical phenom in the world where these magicata are coming out brood 10 after 17 years and so all of a sudden this beautiful metaphor of us coming out of our global pandemic and coming out of social isolation and the emergence of the cicadas that perfect metaphor allowed us to capture the larger imagination so it's not just about like oh look at these incredible cicadas but there's a perfect metaphor there i think that that people really latched on to were there and any so, cicadas during um the time when the other ones were supposed to be under that like came out and thought it was like spring break and wanted to party and do the all right uh, well what i saw in early <laughs> may was the the first emergence the first signs yeah. of emergence come out in the first week of may shortly after may may 5th may may 6th was when I first started collecting cicadas. Then we had a cold spell, two of them, mm-hmm. in, in in northeastern New York and New Jersey, where I was collecting mostly in Princeton. And they all went back underground. They were not seen again for like a period of one to two weeks. So wow. that caused great concern for me and like a lot of my entomological colleagues were like, 
is there a concern what because their whole strategy of say uh predator satiation coming out in mass to overwhelm the predators if they come out and emerge over a period of two or three times does that defeat their their whole evolutionary strategy of survival thankfully they were horny and singing their little hearts out and so we think that they're going to survive. Like they, they were really thriving. You can always late. count on horniness. Always. Oh my goodness. Yeah, right. And and I was also going to say that is there, and this may be a question for everybody. Is there a is there a situation where where like you're you're sending you're you're sending the like uh, you know juveniles or something out out first you're sending you're sending the more foolish ones like hey go check it out out mm. there see what see what <laughs> see what it's like for us is there any mechanism because in a lot of species they'll they'll you know there'll be like some bird that bullies some uh, uh, like uh, uh, there'll be a hierarchy and and the lower on the totem pole will kind of starve and not get to eat as much. And then when a predator comes by, they'll go underground. And then the starving one has is forced to come out first to eat. And then if the predator is still around, they get swept up and fill the belly of the predator. And they, they know the predator is still out there. Is there anything like that going on with cicadas? Like, we, hey, let's get these guys out to test the waters first and see what happens. The first ones to emerge are going to be the ones on the south-facing side of a tree and okay. with good sunlight. And even in that one tree, we've done, we've done the, it's on, on, it's usually it takes a full week before the ones on the north side of that same tree will start coming uh, up. I see. Okay. But actually, Shane's touching so, on an interesting point. Sorry to interrupt. Just, just the idea of what kind of social dynamics happen in a truly solitary species that aggregates on mass. And so that could get into some really interesting questions below ground as well as above ground. Like you're going to have differential size. Is there any kind of competition spatially in going for key areas of a route, for example? Well, Monty did a lot of digging and he found that, for example, uh, brood 10 will go down to about uh, 8 to 12 inches below the surface. And then brood 14, can the, where they overlap, will come down as well. For a couple of years, they're together at the same area. But then brood 10 as it ages goes up a few more inches. So they actually segregate out uh, if there's two in one area. Uh, and he, he always thought crowding might be the trigger that uh, uh, pushed a four-year early acceleration. But uh, it didn't seem like that from the data that I'd seen before he, that he'd gathered. Um, so going back to that. Sorry, I want to. I want to go back to the food. And also, yeah, by the way, by the way, that. just to plant a seed of one thing that I will want to get to at some point is is if there is like a insect kind of butter and or cheese situation that can happen. Any insects out there that we can milk, perhaps uh, I'm interested in. But anyway, I'll let you yeah, take the wheel. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll happily <laughs> go back. Go back. But so the the fascinating <laughs> thing is like okay, so we have. All these people talking about eating cicadas are crawling out of the ground after 17 years. So why is it so hard for humans, Americans, to accept the fact that we can sustainably farm and harvest insects for human consumption at FDA-approved facilities, right? So it, it takes us one step closer to the understanding, going back to what you were talking about earlier, Shane. It's like, we don't really know 
And so that's why so much of my work is based on outreach and education because Americans don't know how to think about insect protein. Mm -hmm. They don't, they still think about insects as a whole. And because they're so small, they just think about, oh, I don't want to eat the insect, the whole insect. But it's like, we don't think about eating a whole chicken or a whole cow, right? We think about things that are plated up nicely. We don't even talk about eating cow. We talk about eating beef and steak and hamburgers. So even in the in the terms of the vernacular, we need help. And so that's going back to the whole idea of the interdisciplinary call to action when I'm on college tour. I'm actively recruiting these college students to join this fledgling industry that Barclays projects will grow from $796 million as of 2019 to, to $8 billion in 2030. We need everyone's help. We need people in English. We need business majors. We need engineers to help us create these new farms. We need entomologists. We need food scientists. So we need artists. Like There is room for everyone to participate. So that's what's one of the big revelations for me during this brood is that there are a lot more people, whether they knew it or not, because of the availability of the insects crawling out of the ground that they're like, oh, let's try eating this. So, okay, how do we pivot and continue to work with this idea and grow this idea of insect protein in, in America? Something that's sustainable, something that's nutrient dense, something that provides a solution. And so that's where I could really use all of your helps collectively, uh, even in just like kind of being able to share more of this message, like talking more about it amongst your colleagues and even just being more open because there are, are purportedly you need seven points of engagement to adopt a new idea. And so this could be one of them, Shane. Thank you so much for having me here. Barrett, thank you for your your invite to be on the show and Gene for your expertise in how, helping us to understand what it is about the cicadas. So that was like number one, one of the big revelations with the brood uh, is the psychology of the acceptance and willingness of Americans to try this out with the availability. Well, I will say that there's also a bit of scarcity going on there as well. That that like you said, the needles moved and and everything else. This is this is a once in a once in a thirteen or whatever right. seventeen yeah, year. Yeah opportunity to get to like an ant yeah you know i can i can try an ant next month cicada you better get it while the getting's good this, so this is well, so so that that goes to the next point is that okay so if we're willing to eat the insects coming out of the ground then what about trying this whole variety that the fact that there are over two thousand types of edible insects with wildly different flavor profiles, different textures, different functionalities in the kitchen. And so when people are like, oh, I don't wanna eat bugs because of the texture. I'm like, well, what, what, what texture is that that you're talking about? And they're like, and they could say squishy or crunchy. And it's like, well, you know, the, it could, they're, the complete opposite is also available. Like the texture thing doesn't really come through and it's really the psychology. How do we get through to change a perception of insects being that creepy thing that bites you and that ruins your garden to something that is sustainably farmed or harvested specifically for human consumption. And so it's not necessarily basing the entire body of the work that I'm doing or that the UN is endorsing to just eating cicadas, but to open that narrative, get that little light in the tunnel in the head where it's like, 
okay, we just went through Brutan and we just, this is the most I've ever said Brutan because of Jean. Um, <laughs> that shows a great amount of respect for you, sir. But like, ever. Like, I, I never even say Brutan, ever. Like, all my interviews, everything I've done, I've always said Brutax. Um, so, but it just shows the, the interest and availability because of the availability was there. How do we break through that availability? It's not expecting people to go out and order. A lot of the insects that I get are available on Amazon. It's not expecting people to go out and order whole insects and to cook it for themselves. What we really need is to advance a policy and legislation to create incentives from the USDA to increase funding for cricket agriculture, for insect agriculture, so that there are incentives for farmers, so that we have more outreach and educational programming, and that we, so we can start developing pre-made foods that people can take home from the refrigerated section or what have you and be able to heat up. It's like, oh, look at this delicious cicada mac and cheese. Look at this like amazing cricket fried rice, right? Yeah. And so once we get to that point where people can go like, okay, I've heard now over 10 times about eating insects. I now see it at my local grocery store or my co-op. Now I am ready to buy and try it out. So that's what we really need. It's like all hands on deck. And one really big factor that I love to bring up, and this is like a huge point, is that because edible insects are so extreme, people think in terms of extreme terms, like you're not going to take away my my steak. I'm like, no, I'm not trying to take away your steak. I want. I'm you trying to, to put some eating. insects on that steak for you. <laughs> no, nope, not 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 put insects on it. But come on, increase. No, you crusted. Insect no, I'm not a crusted? fan of that either. Actually, oh, really? what what I what oh, well, I want to do now? Who's judgmental? About well, I'm not. Eating. I'm not personally a fan of it. Okay. but you're welcome to do it. <laughs> what I want to do is add, not subtract. I'm trying to add, not take away. Yeah, sure. I want to add Let me insect help. protein into your pantry, into your diet, where if even one of us, out of the four of us, were to include insect protein once a week, even that would have an impact well, on the environment. Let me just, I'm I'm big into marketing. Let me throw a few things, because first off, like I said, the scarcity that it's in the news is once a lifetime, you're, you're going to get, you have the, you have like the lobster effect, where when lobster was abundant and it was like you'd feed it to prisoners, prisoners were revolting. We can't eat any more lobster. Then you make no it more scarce. And yeah. now you have, and now you have people paying that's the highest price thing on on the menu you 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 use that and then you go there's also you have um so i like instead of sometimes delicious uh as your slogan maybe instead highlight the um the the uh, like other the um, the the variety of the flavor profile. If you if you can get a variety of a flavor profile from an insect that doesn't exist elsewhere, that's something marketable. And now tell and then, now let me tell you an easy one. The wellness folks. First off, they're suckers just generally. Um, and two, they they don't they don't care um, about taste of things. In, in fact, the worse the taste, the better probably. 
uh, placebo effect. And then and then you have uh, and 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 you can package it. You can ship it. You put it in power bars. There has to be insect power bars well, that already, already exist. Lo- yeah, that, that's like the largest market the- share, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. man! And I'm not even saying you're a sucker for eating insect. I'm saying like if you want to hit as many different things as possible, well, because well, there's a lot the, of you're hitting the nail on the head, Shane. Is that there's no silver bullet. There's right. no one thing that's gonna make everyone just go like oh like let this is a this is a thing and so we need to focus on all the different strategies and different food types and different marketing ideas because it's not just one thing where people will all of a sudden go like oh wow and so just keeping going exactly keep going keep going because and and that's really been a, a big part of what what we've been uh you know what we've been doing for like four and a half years because there's also like the Dabasco effect where people want to like what's the hottest thing you can take there there's something like that going on with like oysters and other things where people are like like i've eaten rocky mountain oysters before if you ever find yourself dating a girl and meeting her family in dallas for the first time they will bully you into doing so and to get them to shut up you'll put a rocky mountain oyster in your mouth and it'll Hopefully be it the exact experience if you just close your eyes and imagine what it's like to bite down on a testicle it's exactly you're picturing <laughs> it right it's exactly it's exactly what you think it is and um and but but you also have that kind of going on with uh with insects as well where where there's a certain demographic that will eat them as a dare and then be like well actually that was that was interesting so uh, uh, there's there's just there's so many different ways you can get into the insects but what i'm mostly interested in is i want i'm a foodie i want an actual i want a fine dining and it doesn't need to be all insects it can be like you said just a side dish or something like that i want the fine dining delicacy. This is a special event. I'm celebrating. What's what's the best? Like, what's your favorite insect and and your favorite way to prepare it? That's what I'm interested in. Can I say that I've had the great privilege of being present at one of Brooklyn Bugs' major events? And you can the, say that the many entrees, appetizers that are. You've been at two events, have oh no, oh no, you were not at Madison, right? Oh no, you I were, was but you, were you not at the dinner? Yeah, I was at the big dinner. You, were you at the dinner? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, but then you were also at the the New York Hall of Science event. That's that right, of course. So you were at two events. Basically, yeah. it highlighted the variability. And now Joseph mentioned that two thousand types of insects have traditionally or modern day been eaten, but with over a million described species of insects imagine the potential and it's really limitless because if you can take one insect with all the different stages of development as well as all the different ways that you could prepare now extrapolate across the diversity my favorite insect of all times they won't want to guess for consumption yeah is it that delicious lemon tasting ant no Shane, Gene, either of you guys want to guess? You want me to take a chance? Guys. Yeah. Um, Think low-hanging fruit. General cicada. I, oh man, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say beetle, dung beetle. 
I've never tried a bung, dung beetle. That would be it's so little, brave. It's a little weird. Um, my, my, my favorite insect to eat, Gene, did you want to take a wild guess? Well, the, uh, I've enjoyed insects in several places. My favorite was a little uh, vendor in Helgado in Mexico, and I had mesquite bugs which were just amazing. It's like a soft corn nut. And mm. he served mesquite bug tacos. He also had white uh, 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 ant, ant egg uh, tacos, as well as yeah. agave uh, caterpillar. And there's a Zafiros, which is a culinary institute in Mexico City, trains people in cooking insects. And I remember this beautifully mm. sculpted hummus with delicately balanced to the top, a deep fat fried agave caterpillar, which is, it tastes like a I was wonderful. gonna say caterpillar. Okay, guys, I, I'm, I'm just kind of, only a little smudge disappointed. It's, in all is it really guys. cicada? Because it is the cicada. You're kidding me. I was trying me. to clue you guys oh, in. Like, you're think just, about the lowest you hanging gone, fruit. That's, that's, yeah, but I didn't even want to believe it. Like, I, I just didn't. Just I just didn't want to believe that you're like a bandwagon <laughs> okay. insect okay, so eater. Okay, so if I if I could share with you some of the <laughs> the discoveries of the actual cicada, if we have time, I can keep this short. Uh, well, uh, uh, I, okay. It's up to the other guys. It, it, okay. Yeah, but um, probably we should wrap up soonish. Feel free to tap me on the screen if I'm if I. Uh, so what's amazing is that I've been collecting the cicadas through all their life stages right now. So I collected the nymphs, the tendrils, and the adults. And the tendrils are when they molt go through the last instar and they, uh, from the nymph and before they uh, become a, a, an adult. And so what's been amazing is that I also was very misinformed and used my best judgment in how I've been working with insects. I have been cooking with insects now for over four years. And so I was interviewed countless times about how to process and cook with cicadas. And I was like, well, you guys know that I haven't yet even eaten a cicada yet. And they're like, well, yeah, but the story is now because it's happening. And this is two months ago, which is mm -hmm. amazing that it's still in the news cycle. And, and, and they're like, well, no, just tell us what you think. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, based on what I understand, I mean, you, you boil it for a little bit to, you want to blanch it a little bit and then maybe bake it to dry it out again and, and be able to eat it, fry it up, add it to your favorite foods. But, you wanna you wanna boil cicadas, uh, blanch it. Wrong, wrong. Yeah, completely wrong. I can see someone getting worked up about this. Yeah, yeah, it's so erroneous because the, you can blanch the nymphs. Yes, because they have the way that they're designed. They're living underground. They won't get waterlogged, so they can keep the water out because they're you know they they can be flooded by mm -hmm. water and they could repel the water from getting in. So yes, you could blanch them and that is a perfect way to make them food safe and then prepare them in further applications. The adults, you put them in boiling water, you know what's gonna happen? Not They're good. They're gonna become not good at all, not recommended at all because they will liquefy their insides and then they'll become a mushy mess. Like, ew, no texture, you're taking out 17 years of mother nature's goodness. They've been feeding yeah. themselves with all this goodness, ready for me to eat this deliciousness. You ruined it, yeah. And then, yeah, and then what? I'm gonna ruin it, it by, yeah. I'm, I, and then I'm what, gonna what do you want me to serve you a boot? What yeah, do you mean? Right. Well done. And then when people are talking about then like 
oh, you don't want to eat that squishiness, like dry it out. It's like, oh yeah, like you love eating dried chicken, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, is that what you're, you're saying that you want to take this delicious, succulent adult cicada mm-hmm. and you want to like turn it into mush and then dry it out to basically make it into a beef jerky and then dry it. I, I mean, it's just like, no, that's all wrong. When you say it and, like that, it makes no sense whatsoever. Makes, thank you, Shane, for agreeing <laughs> with me. So the what's been fascinating is that so I, I, I've been I've already <laughs> made dozens of dishes and I'm easily going to make 100 unique dishes with cicadas easily. Um, and what I found to be fascinating is with the nymphs, they're essentially like these exploding, just meat-filled bugs. They're just so incredible. Sorry, they're not bugs, Gene Barrett. Well, well they are bugs. bugs. They bo- they oh, they, are oh bugs. no, they are yeah. bugs. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. So right. for the audience, right. they have the, they have the, for the yeah, audience, right. true bugs, one of the orders of insects, Hemiptera, have piercing, sucking proboscis. Uh, used to feed on plant juices or blood. Mm. Yes. Um, so the, the great thing is that I've made them in it, like stir fried them. I've made, added them to kimchi. And interestingly, when you do the traditional kimchi, you use baby shrimp or oysters and you want to get that umami flavor. Oh my God. What about adding, adding these nips mm. to add that flavor and also it has that texture of like the the baby shrimp as well and so you bite into it and it's like just squirts it absorbs all the flavor of the the spiciness and the garlickiness the pepperiness of the kimchi but then also has all the vegetable goodness it is fascinating and really a marvel the adults i can't wait uh yeah barrett did you invest in a separate freezer Story. I did, yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't. I I secured a I secured a freezer. I vacuum yeah. sealed it so that so I could uh yeah have have a supply That's, essentially to work with. For you just you double you threw a bit of a wrench in my marketing plan with the buy the extra freezer for your insects, but we can we can work with it. We can yeah. Work with uh, it. Well, this is just for I, someone I, like I, me though, because right. I plan extensively doing R and D with with the cicadas, not only myself but with uh, other chefs and and universities to to really work in the food science area of this but you know that no i, I vacuum seal it to remove all the air and then so i don't double bag because it. I, I vacuum seal it will it. be three years before joseph comes to stay with me in wisconsin and experience brew yes. 13 yes that's right wow. for those wisconsin well, we, listeners we <laughs> for, yeah I, we, we do i was just gonna say we should probably wrap up uh, <gasps> Hold on, no, I've got two more things to read. Okay, all right. Real, real quickly, oh. I would say the adults, the revelation with adults. They're Gene started delicious. drinking like two hours ago. Like, <laughs> be, so, so be mindful. <laughs> um, so with the adults, everyone's like, "Oh, don't eat the adults." Okay. They're all like, "Oh, no good." Uh, you know what? Maybe learn how to cook with the adults yeah. before you say that. Then, because the adults are incredibly delicious. The wings are also very edible if you know how to cook with them. Uh, someone that I, that I shared it with didn't like the wings so much. That's fine. I understand maybe not for, for first-time eaters of insects. But the adults are incredibly delicious. They're very versatile to work with. 
Um, so I, I just think really yeah. going back to what Barrett said earlier, uh, the only limitation with cooking with an insect is it with your imagination. I, and I, so it, I love yeah. the aggressiveness of your insect cooking uh, recipes too. I, I like the no no patience for the noobs trying to figure it out. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think that the time the time that we had made yeah. me rush a little bit sure, and sound sure. a little more aggressive than usual. <laughs> sure. I, I, and then, yeah. I, I think it was. I felt like very tired. <laughs> so I think that's well, where the alcohol uh, makes us all out. a little surly sometimes. Barrett, read yes. us something beautiful. So I think it's important to include uh, Margaret Atwood, author of *Handmaid's Tale*. She wrote this in a series of poems. Such a great this- show, too. By the way, I wish I liked reading. Um, well, let me read for on. you. <laughs> so here's her poem titled *Cicada*. Finally, after nine years of snouting through darkness, he inches up scarred bark and cuts loose the yammer of desire, the piercing one note of a jackhammer vibrating like a slow bolt of lightning, splitting the air and leaving a smell like burnt tar paper. Now it says, now it says, now clinging with six clawed legs, and close by, a she like a withered ear, a shed leaf brown and vain shivers and sink and moves closer. This is it. Time is short. Death is near. But first, 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 in the hot sun, searing all day long in a month that has no name, this annoying noise of love, this maddening racket, this admitted song. Beautiful. Yeah, it's almost, yeah, that's a dark uh, take a little bit. You can see the, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to get from A to B with Handmaid's Tale to Cicada and just where she comes from as a disposition. In an interview where Margaret Atwood read this aloud, she said that at least for a brief time, UK's Amazon ranked her book of poetry, including this poem, as number one erotica poetry. (laughs) <laughs> so, there you go brilliant yeah <laughs> amazing and i think uh, i should also include a poetic celebration of cicadas mm-hmm. from the first century bce somewhere between actually 1 bce and 6 B, uh, ce commoner ready this is from the anacreontia We know that you are a royally blessed cicada when among the treetops you sip some dew and sing your song. For every single thing is yours that you survey among the fields and all the things the woods produce. The farmer's constant company, you damage nothing that is theirs. Esteemed you are by every human as the summer's sweet-voiced prophet. Muses love you, and Apollo too who's gifted you with high-pitched song. Old age does nothing that can wear you. Earth's sage and song-enamored sun. You suffer not, being flesh and bloodless, a godlike creature, virtually. Wow. 
I well, I have to go dry my eyes. But before we uh, before we leave, <laughs> could uh, first off, I want to thank Joseph Yoon, Barrett Klein, and Gene um, Kritsky for joining the show. Do you guys want to plug let people know where to find you and what you do? Um, Barrett, why, or Gene, why don't you go first? Uh, you can get my new book, uh, Periodical Skaters, the Brood 10 edition at Amazon. And, uh, of course, the uh, website for the app is cicadasafari.org. That's a free app available on Google Play and the App Store. It's gonna be, it'll be used for the annual cicadas after the periodicals are gone. Amazing. Barrett? Uh, you can find me through UW Lacrosse, University of Wisconsin Lacrosse's site, or Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T, at pupating.org. Pupating is what a fully metamorphosing insect does going through a pupal stage. Amazing. And Joseph, I know I have a lot of East Coast visitors. It's it's the Big Apple. A lot of people are visiting. They're looking for something unique and interesting to do while they're there. Good date night place. Where can people find out um, more about what you do in eating bugs? Well, first, I'm so grateful to be on the show with you, Shane. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be able to share our message of edible insects. And uh, I'm at, at brooklynbugs.com. And I have a very robust and active uh, social media where I show lots of different applications with edible insects. I am beginning to resume my public scheduling and so if you have a university or a museum where you'd like me to come and visit, talk about, share my work, I am available for that, those uh, upcoming dates. And also, if you happen to be visiting New York, I guess I will make my first official announcement that I will be uh, launching a private dining and catering service to uh, be able to cater your events. And um, I was actually just getting ready to make that announcement publicly on my social oh. media. But uh, Shane, well, I'll, I'll put it. I'll put this out in a I'll put this out in like a couple of weeks so it includes all the links and everything else. So so you have all the time to give me all the everything that you want people to know and have everything in order. Yeah, all the deets. I you know it is really fascinating to be here. I, I based on what you said, this is your first four top. Yeah, and uh, that's why it ran two hours. Uh, two hours plus. I, I guess. love a good two-hour episode. <laughs> but, but what a pleasure! Like really, uh, I, I have an intellectual crush on Gene, and I'm with Barrett, a creative crush, and Shane. I guess you're you're now my you're you're now my podcast crush. So, so it's wonderful, wonderful so many crushes. Thank yeah. you so much. Well, thank you everybody for joining me, and thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. Find out more in the description below if you're on YouTube, or check out the HereWeArePodcast.com website, and we'll talk with you next week. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week on the show, Athena Activis. The Cheating Cell is her book, How Evolution Helps Us Understand and Treat Cancer. Had her on the show. This is her third time back on the show. Um, had her on years ago talking about cancer. Uh, had her had her on at the beginning of COVID, just like when everything was crazy. And to hear her her thoughts on on uh, things from um, from someone that studies uh, cancer and other related things 
things that plague the human condition. But this episode that's coming out next week is all about uh, apocalypse scenarios. It's a fun one. So Athena's a, uh, you you may not remember, or maybe you're new to the show, but she's a science communicator uh, herself. And, and despite, to, or in addition to doing her own research, she's a terrific science communicator with her own podcast called Zombified, where makes science and uh, kind of dark apocalyptic scenarios and stuff sort of fun and explores the ideas of, like, okay, zombies, what would that actually look like? What is the, uh, you know, what is the actual science behind that? What kind of, what kind of things exist in nature that do actually have zombie-like behavior? We actually don't talk about zombies next week, sorry. We probably talked about them in the past. But we uh, we kind of talked about what our favorite, if we are going to gamble on what will kind of be the downfall of humanity, uh, we, we we chatted about that really fun conversation. It's, that's my sensibilities. That's a fun conversation for me. The downfall of humanity, that's what I enjoy talking about. Four kicks. Uh, I like the darkness, and it's so fascinating and interesting, and important to talk about, and actually consider and prepare for as well. So, super cool episode. You know, when I have returned guests on, it's because uh, I I think their work is incredible, and I think that uh, we have terrific conversations. So, anytime you're seeing a return guest, chances are. It's going to be a good episode. Next week's is. And um, your support on Patreon means so much in terms of just so this podcast costs money to make and edit. To It takes time and energy to try to put things out on social media and edit highlights and try to grow it. Um, small podcast, you know, um, I don't have I don't have celebrity guests. I don't uh, I don't try to do a bunch of clickbait things um uh you know i like hearing about cicadas or something because they're in the news or um just having fun chats with people about a random variety of subjects uh so if you if you learn near as much from this show as i learned from doing it uh, you can please support it by going to patreon it's how i keep this ad free um and it's also, uh, you know, not only does this show cost money, but I cost money. I need food and rent money and, and that sort of thing. I'm still waiting on hearing back about something before I um, start planning a tour and doing shows because I've kind of um, been holding out for a top option. But now that I'm doing Mind Under Matter, which if you haven't checked out, is a fantastic show. I can't imagine you listened to this show and wouldn't love Mind Under Matter, maybe even like it more. I, I, you'll probably uh, start making both shows into your rotation. But check that out um, as well. And there's a lot of free ways that you can help us out. One, reviewing our shows, reviewing this show. If you haven't done it on iTunes, Stitcher, anything like that, 
do just word of mouth is the number one best thing. If you've learned something interesting and you use it as a, a as a conversation topic or come up with something um, that gives you some thoughts for work or, or anything like that, uh, please um, consider spreading the word to other people who you think might be uh, curious about the things that we talk about on here and, uh, you know, grow this from a grassroots. This is never going to be um, the biggest podcast in the world or anything like that, but I would like to continue to make improvements. I would like to maybe get a studio now that uh, we can do in-person things again, because now that I've scaled up and added video and everything else, I, I want to, uh, I want to see what we can, what we can do in terms of really, um, upping the quality and everything. So, um, I, I believe in this, uh, this show just because I just love, uh, I believe in science and I, I love getting to learn about it in this way. And I hope you guys do as well. So very much appreciate all of your support. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are of course, my favorites.